Hello, movie lovers. Welcome home. My name is Amy Henserling, and you are listening to Watch This List Unplugged. We are here today with my dear friend, Dan Jensen, who is an avid reader and uh, has very interesting cinematic tastes. Uh, his four favorite films, actually, Dan, can you, can you, do you know them off the top of your head? Because I was looking at them yesterday and I was like, this guy is like all over the place with, with the taste that you have. I change them on a fairly regular basis because basically there's a certain level that once a movie hits that, it's amongst my favorite movies ever. And that basically stays where it is. Uh -huh. um, but I don't know. Right now on Letterboxd, it's The Leopard Man, uh, yep, Dog Day first. Afternoon, yep. Wild at Heart, and uh, The Matrix Resurrections. Okay, so I'm... I think that everyone would agree, like having having Matrix Resurrections and then having Leopard Man is like so different. And then you've got the Lynch in there and you don't just have like a typical Lynch. You have Wild at Heart. And then what was the other one? Dog Day Afternoon. Dog Day Afternoon. <laughs> you, you out of everyone I follow is like, I'm like, I don't know what Dan would think of this movie. I, I don't, I can't like. I can't read you right off the bat, which is a compliment to you because I, I find it very fascinating. I don't know if you're going to give something like you gave Miami Vice four and a half and then and then some movies I love, you'll give it two stars. And I'm like, how do I how do I predict what you're going to like? I don't know, Dan. I don't know. Well, thank you. But I think it's important to keep in mind that my star rating isn't a quality thing it's just oh. how likely am i to watch this again that's basically the flat curve mm. so um I, so it's I, more of a rewatchability criteria it really thing. is okay so so it's not that you're saying necessarily this is a five-star film you're just saying how much you are likely to revisit yes and how how strongly that i respond to it so um, okay. something like uh, The Seventh Victim, which we'll be talking about relatively shortly. Yes. The first time I watched it, I wasn't even sure how much I liked it, but I was absolutely sure that I strongly, strongly responded to it. And that, that counts for a lot for me. Okay. So how much does it move you, basically? Basically, to some okay. extent. Yeah. Do you have like a favorite ever? Like, do you have a number one favorite? My favorite movie ever is Audition. Takashi Miike, and it isn't actually that's by. all that close. Sorry, I'm I'm a big Miike guy. I've seen probably 37 of his movies, which doesn't sound like oh a lot. Gosh. Yes, it in does. the context of 120 or whatever he's put out now. Okay. <laughs> well, I have to ask why. What is it about Audition? I have seen it, so you can't. You know, I, I have some context, but I'm fascinated. So. The movie, in my opinion, is about how for the last two centuries, men don't listen to women at all <laughs> and how she's basically forcing him to listen for the first time in his life. And wow, Dan, there's um, there are these edits that you can see in their initial conversations between the uh, the two uh, main characters in the restaurant. And mm -hmm. it looks almost like it's weird. It almost looks like it's defective editing or something. Like he didn't get the match shots exactly correctly. But then in the post-drugging sequence at the end, they play the scenes that were sort of elided from the whole thing. And it's whenever she's talking about her pain or her loneliness or her um, challenges, those are the ones that were edited the first time. So it's as if when he's falling in love with her, he's just skipping all of the things that are uncomfortable or difficult for him to hear. And it's only when she says, no, listen, seriously, <laughs> you have to listen to me. And um, I, I love that movie so much for that reason. So what what is that? since you're a man right and you're mm -hmm. saying this what what because I, I could imagine like a female perspective sort of saying like I love this movie because it makes men listen but for you what in particular speaks to you about that I love any movie in which women or any oppressed group really but most of my personal experiences with women uh, come into their full power um, that whole idea of actualization is really important to me um, and so that obviously is easy to see in, you know, the standards Joseph Campbell 
arc type thing. And I always enjoy seeing that even when it's like cheesy. So for example, Birds of Prey, I think I probably gave at least four and a half, maybe five stars because, you know, it's that, uh, that, that narrative of um, we're starting under oppression and then we work our way to not under oppression anymore. I just don't respond to it when it's, you know, white men, because I don't believe that white men are very oppressed. I know that'll probably right. get you some emails, but <laughs> that's sort of my, uh, my general philosophy. Men. But right. one of the reasons I love, see, I'm going to, I'm going to skip back to Matrix Resurrections. I love that Go movie so much because it is Lana Wachowski <clears throat> um, basically saying, I'm the only person in the universe that could have made this film, right? Because she, it is all about her, her journey from this uh, super hot, whatever it is, where she has all of this magic and power and ability to influence things and change things and become the, the savior of this system. And by the end of the movie, the only thing Neo and Trinity are using their magic for is to defend themselves. It's just, you know, a million people trying to kill them and destroy them and ruin their way of life. And all like the whole stakes of the, vic of the victory at the end of that movie is that they survive that they're, you know, happy and allowed to live as they want to at the end. And, you know, psychiatrists are holding them down. All of the, uh, everything in the corporate structure is holding them down. The studio people are trying to hold them down. And instead, all they get to do is survive. And that's called this glorious, happy victory. And so that's one of the reasons that I respond to that movie so much, because I literally think that any other filmmaker would have butchered that film. And instead, it's about, you know, a trans woman coming all the way into her power for the first time at you know age 50 or whatever it is right so you just love the it's the empowerment and then also just the it's almost like the the strength of the person who finally comes into their own and then how, how they're able to harness that into whatever area that they're in it's almost <laughs> like re realizing your passion in a way but then it, it sounds like for you it's also identity woven it into you've you've exactly nailed it even if that identity is somebody who saws off somebody's foot with piano wire i'm right. all the way in you're it. all you're all in you're all in and you don't feel bad for the for the white guys no i do feel a little bit bad for uh the 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 guy in uh audition because he's you know too. from an older generation and so he just right. wasn't thinking that this was a possibility for mm -hmm. obvious reasons right <laughs> but i still right. love i still love that uh that I love that movie. That's fantastic. I, I mean, see, we couldn't have, I was going to say, oh, we should have had that, but audition is hardly a hidden gem. So not exactly. <laughs> that No, not now anyway. It might've been at some point in history, but um, I'm pretty sure everyone is aware of it, even if they haven't seen it. That's another one. I don't know if you follow Mike D'Angelo, the critic, um, but that's one of his favorites too. That's, that's the reason I've seen it is because he, he five-starred that one and he doesn't uh, give a lot of stars. Usually. He's, he's, um, he, he's kind of the original internet critic. I mean, if you were yeah. on the internet in 1996, as I was, uh, he was basically the first guy to have a website up. He and uh, Bryant Frazier's deep focus were basically the oh, two yeah. places I would go to. I love Bryant Frazier. Rest, rest in peace, obviously, I know. for Bryant. I love that guy. Yeah, I love that, that guy. And uh, he was so... Uh, interested in like the um not just the the films themselves but like the commentary and the the way that dvds were made and like he was really into like not just not just reviewing but like the whole thing which i love when people get obsessive about stuff like that it just everything adds to the quality of what they say about film he was also possibly still the sweetest person I've ever met online, but oh, I didn't know him in real life. Um, he, I exchanged emails with him, you know, weekly or whatever for a long period of time. Wow, and Dan, that's so cool. He's the one that actually got me hooked on mashup music <laughs> back in the early, like mid nineties. And he's mm -hmm. just, it's so nice about everything. I remember I asked him about whether the winter bone, uh, Blu-ray had a very weird, what was going on with the, um, uh, mastering of the uh, red onto the Blu-ray thing, and he had a technical ex ex uh, explanation for how that works exactly. That the exactly mastering that's exactly weird. He was and right, and that's great. But he also took the time to explain that to me, even though I'm just a guy. You know, it's not like I'm his 
I don't know, brother or whatever, which is who I would normally want, you know, expect to explain something to me for an hour. Like I'm, you know, a very patient, precocious child. Right. <laughs> He's just such a sweetheart. He was so sweet and so passionate. I just, I just think that it's, uh, well, we said we weren't necessarily going to talk about Henry Fool, but there is a line there where uh, when um, the character's meeting with the priest and he says the time that Henry shines the most is when he's helping others learn. That's that's such a good line. I love that. So, line. yeah, so it's it's that's what it's this is reminding me of where if the the more passionate you are about something, it becomes contagious. And then your ability to sort of instill that in someone else, it can be so powerful. Absolutely. I feel like that's its purpose. Okay, so before we get way, way off, thank you for your explanation, Dan. Now when I look at your ratings and they come in my feed, I will know I will have some sort of point in my head where I can say, okay, maybe he saw this and this. Because before I wasn't sure what your common thread was. <laughs> but I knew there had to be one. Well, I like to throw curveballs every once in a while too. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so your first film, the first hidden gem that Dan picked, it, uh, which he mentioned already, is The Seventh Victim. Um, it's uh, from 1943, directed by Mark Robson. And um, it's got some of the most beautiful, well, I guess she's in a wig, but I do love her hair. Uh, <laughs> the character's Brooks. hair. She is Jean so Brooks. amazing, isn't she? Yes. Now, before we get into it, Dan, can you tell me how would you describe this film to someone who's never seen it? Uh, Set it up for us. Well, it's, I mean, I would say it's generally kind of a dark fairy tale where a uh, woman goes looking for her sister and um, uh, nothing is as it seems, right? <laughs> she finds a bevy yes. of Satanists, allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> Always fun to discover, like yeah. Rosemary's Baby, where it's just like, oh, your next door neighbor or, you know, th this person who's actually very uh, pleasant to be around and cordial could be well wor worshiping Satan. And I think that's one of the reasons I like The Seventh Victim so much is that the Satanists are perfectly pleasant people. And also they're, they're coded um, in very interesting ways. And I think this gets into why I, uh, one of the reasons I like it so much, and again, this is the oppressed group thing, is that they're definitely coded as... Um, a large section of them are coded as gay, certainly. And mm -hmm. that's a, uh, it's a, it's very queer friendly film in that even though um, one of the women, uh, let's see, <laughs> when uh, she says to um, the, the sister who's searching, you know, about uh, her sister, um, what, uh, let's see, the quote was something like, dear, we were intimates. Um <laughs> The times we used exactly to have subtle. together, right? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> oh, I'll bet you she never told you about that. You're too young. <laughs> Things like that. And so, Wink, wink, hint, hint. Yes. It isn't. Yeah, you're way past winks and, and shrugs yeah. and hints, right? Right, right. Um, but at the same time, and this is one of the reasons I love it, um, is that mm. even if, you know, some of the quote unquote bad guys are, um, are coded as gay, they're also, that isn't why they're bad guys, <laughs> you know, like they're not demonized specifically for that, as opposed to other movies from that era, where um, I was thinking specifically of The Big Heat, which was maybe 10 yes. years later, where there's that, um, I, I promise he has to be a studio head that they were they were uh, focusing on, the, the bad guy that's in charge of everything, and he's coded as extremely gay and wearing a bathrobe around the house and, you know, coming out of his bedroom with his uh, butler or whatever. And so you, you just know that um, a lot of times that was just shorthand for, you know, these guys aren't trustworthy. These are guys are bad. Right. Whereas the seventh victim, they're, they're all these people and you know not to trust them, but they're just coded as people like above everything else. And they're, um, they're all kind of children and they're all kind of ineffectual and they're all interesting adults, but none of them are, um, you know, uh, reduced to whatever the most obvious version of themselves is. And so I very much enjoy that. And this is also, uh, I think both of your picks are based on books, right? Uh, the Seventh Victim was actually based on a, um, it, it had a long tortured history as a set of screenplays. Um, okay. 
And uh, originally it was supposed to be taking place in an asylum in, in California, and there were supposed to be seven victims and so on and so forth. I'm not even sure, with the exception of the fact that uh, Gene Brooks' room is, is number seven in that room, I'm not even not sure, sure what how... the seventh victim even means in this context. I was the, I literally had that question when I was watching it. I was like, reminder to ask Dan, why is it called this? Because there's not really... I mean, to my knowledge, unless I completely missed it, that is not apparent. No, I mean, I, I count two victims. <laughs> there may be a couple of others, but that's about right. it. Um, right. It's kind of an arbitrary title. It, it's a very arbitrary title. I mean, no more arbitrary than than some of the, well, you know, it's always difficult to know exactly how people title these things, right? Mm-hmm. But to title it the seventh victim and not have a seventh victim is very interesting. It's kind of like, <laughs> or, unless it unless it's like you said, where it went through so many iterations and revisions that they eventually just lost that part of it completely and then didn't bother to change it. Uh, that is my understanding of how that screenplay worked. Okay, so it just went through it went through a lot of changes. Now, when when did you stumble upon this? When did you first see it? So this was Criterion's third big collection of movies was the Val Luton Horror Collection um, back when they first uh, opened the channel. So I think it would have been July a couple of years ago. And um, so I, I just tore through all, all of those pictures and I love most of them. Um, just I, I love those movies so much. That's probably still my favorite Criterion collection. Um, yeah, I was going to say we can't really talk about either movie without mentioning Luton uh, as the producer. Yeah, Luton and also um, Mark Robeson was obviously his uh, the, the second to Jacques Tenor for a lot of those other films, um, which we'll get to one of those in a minute. Um, right. But one of the things I love about Luton is that he does seem so very um, live and let live and queer friendly and existentialist and just very... Um, very much not what that studio system was interested in, uh, you would have thought. Um, the other thing that I really love about this movie and the next is that there are so many scenes of women talking. It is unbelievable. Yes. I'm sure you noticed. Yes. And I read that in your review too, that you were like, is there a movie of this time period where it's literally like just women and there's not a lot of men. I mean, there are that they come in, but it, it is very female centric for sure. Um, the one of the times I watched it, um, I did actually count up the various scenes, and I don't have those notes handy. But it was the the scenes where two women were talking outnumbered the scenes where two men were talking by something like twelve scenes to four, which was just so nice to see. <laughs> and it's nineteen forty three, right? So that was probably very uncommon at the time. I think it was. Tragically, I'm beginning to think that was more common then than it is now. Than it is now. Um, but that's just uh, that's just my my feeling digging through all of these various, you know, noir movies. Yeah. It's kind of the I had this sensation when I watched Eight Women, uh, Frank's hidden gem that he picked, where I mean there's literally no men in that um at all. But it, it does um feel different. And then when you know it's a male director. Uh, that sort of adds another interesting layer, just like here, it, where it's like it's a male director, um, and so the vision is that, but somehow it gets it right. Allman is a weirdly feminist kind of director in that. Um, obviously, also, uh, come back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean. Jimmy Dean is also mostly women. Um, he He understood something i i think he's coming at it more from an intellectual standpoint about um you know the, these women's conversations are way more interesting than men are giving them credit for as mm. opposed to um something like luton movies where i really feel like the women are definitely central because he thinks that they make good protagonists um they're they're representing mm. something a little bit more challenging than you know, uh, Jan, uh, white, handsome guy going, skipping blithely through whatever trouble he, he stumbles into. You know what I mean? Right. Kind of like noir. I mean, noir is always, there's always a male at the, at the center of that one, unless it's like, you know, there's a femme fatale character usually, but it's not usually the female protagonist. 
Sometimes. Um, I just watched uh, Robert Sidemack's um, The Phantom Lady, and that also is. Oh, yeah, you told me to see that. I think you'll really enjoy it. Yeah, I saw that you reviewed that recently, too. And that's uh, on in the Criterion channel right now, too. I think it might it might be or it might have just fallen off. So no, it's going to fall off. It is. It's going to fall off in June. I have uh-huh. a little bit of time, Dan. Okay. Well, that's good. I'm very happy to hear that. I know. I need the, to get on it, though. You're right. The rest of the side Mac movies fell off. That was why I wasn't sure. Okay. I have that. I have a list. Every time the Criterion, you know, each month it'll say leaving, mm-hmm. you know, May 31st or whatever. Um, I will always write down the ones that I need to get to before they leave. And I remember you suggesting it. And then I saw phantom lady was only going to be there for a little while longer but i like the title too it's kind of it's intriguing the the first half hour of it or first hour is just exceptional um after that it falls off a little but only because noir conventions you know how that goes yeah so for seventh victim why do you feel like this is underseen or why is it what what is it about it that makes it less popular because a lot of people haven't logged it well the um, for one, I don't think it's super available. That that Criterion release was the first time I'd actually seen it in any sort of streaming service. It was available on DVD at, uh, for a while, um, but I don't even know that that's available anymore. I think it might be part of a four-pack of uh, Luton movies that you can download uh, or that you can buy on one DVD, but it's you know an eBay-only type of thing. Um, it is available on Amazon Prime, I believe, for 10 Yes, that's how like I saw that. it. Yeah. So it's yeah. available for reasonable. Um, but I think that was a part of it. The other ha- uh, the other significant issue is that the ending is very um, uh, abrupt and also doesn't leave a lot of satisfying conclusion feelings in place. So I think that if you go into it and you're expecting something, you know, ending that's happy and uh, satisfying, um, it, it, it might surprise you with that. Go somewhere else. Yeah, this isn't exactly that sort of picture. And it doesn't, to be fair, the way that it begins and sort of unfolds, you kind of have this feeling like it's not just going to be all like tidally wrapped up in a bow, you know, and conclude well for everyone involved. It it does <laughs> sort of have that haunting effect. Well, I mean, it's, it's always, um, the, they're doing... Uh, the poems that are being read by the children are all like basically suicide poems and John Mm -hmm. Donne and, uh, you know, Oliver Wendell Holmes gets quoted and it's all very dark and weird in a um, uh, unsettling way. And I mean, I think that's probably the best reason to see it is how unsettling some of the imagery is, particularly in the first half, which I, um, there's a, there's a scene where um, a detective has to walk into a dark corner and I swear that absolutely influenced David Lynch and how he filmed um, Lost Highway. Lost Highway. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So uh, it's definitely worth catching just strictly as a as a filmmaking um, uh, as a filmmaking exercise and technical craft, right? Right, and it's very deep in its themes. I read an article about how it's like very nihilistic, and then also the whole thing about um, the queer perspective as well and influence but i they had a good chunk about nihilism and how the central character is treated and then how she sort of acts non-traditionally as soon as we meet her um it's not exactly what you'd think and so it's it's a very compelling movie in that sense because it's constantly making you question what you think is about to happen and then it's like nope that's not what's going to (laughs) happen yeah you know and also, um, they they brought back, and I'm blanking on the actor's name from uh, the Leopard Man, still a psychiatrist yes. here. And um, but yeah, in this case, he's even worse, like more useless than he was in the Leopard Man, which is a fairly high bar. Um, yes, because he says, uh, you know, uh, they they say, oh, I hear you deal with uh, dipsomaniacs, alcoholics, and he was like, yeah, I can't even do that anymore. <laughs> Read my book. <laughs> Right. Like I'm a full charlatan. I guess I've given up on being useful anymore. So (laughs) I don't really care about anything ever. Yes, it's it is. And you're right. Well, we'll go straight into it since he mentioned it. Dan, his next movie is The Leopard Man um, from 1943 as well, actually. So they're in the same year. They both have uh, Gene Brooks 
as well. Yes. And uh, this this one is by, say the director's name, because I like the way you said it. Uh, Jacques Tourneur. Jacques um, Tourneur. I feel like he, it should be. But Mark Robeson, the director of Seventh Victim, was the um, the DP on this. So Awesome. So there's a lot of parallels there. Now, this one you have is your number one favorite film. So set this up for us. I, I want to know what you love. Well, again, to go into um, the, the general themes of, uh, you know, women <laughs> and uh, how they react to these sorts of things, it's, uh, it's a fascinating picture. And um, I, I guess here I should set it up by saying it's based on a book called The Black, uh, Black Alibi by Cornell Woolrich. And mm -hmm. the book is fascinating in exactly the opposite way that the movie is fascinating in that the book is about, it's basically a Jack the Ripper style serial killer story where um, it is, I think, probably five victims. And it's these women go out and then they get murdered. And uh, an American guy that happens to be visiting. And I suppose I should mention that it takes place in South America somewhere instead of... Um, New Mexico, as the New movie Mexico. does. Um, mm -hmm. And so this American goes out, solves the murder with the help of one of the women, um, and uh, kills the bad guy. The first three killings are taken directly from the book in the movie. Um, they basically track exactly perfectly up until that point. The interesting thing about the book is that it's actually, it only gets good after that. <laughs> That's the part where the book actually comes alive because it has these okay. two stalking sequences where the killer stalks one woman from a friend group and then the uh, sort of uh, would-be detective guy stalks the killer using the other woman from the friend group. And so it's these two nicely symmetrical mirror image scenes with each other. Um, and it's really, it's a wonderful ending to the book that's very tense. The movie, on the other hand, goes in a different direction with the killings. And um, I don't know, it's, uh, it's more conventional in one way, but it's also, um, it relies more on female agency, for example, than the, than the movie does, or than the book does, rather. I apologize. Um, and so uh, I really like the movie from the standpoint of it is... Um, it has mostly native actors. It isn't this completely whitewashed whatever. Yeah. And it has that vibe too. The music and the setting are very, very key to the atmosphere setting. Like you feel like you're you're transported. So I think this is where I should should bring up Ardell Ray, who's one of the great unsung um heroines of uh, or female characters of old Hollywood that never gets uh, anything like the appropriate amount of credit. Um, she is the woman that uh, Val Luton, I guess she was uh, in a relationship with Dalton Trumbull at one point or Trumbo and wow. uh, in yeah, fact Trumbo. helped write uh, Johnny Got His Gun, um, but then had all of her credit sort of removed from that. But they have her names and notes on a lot of the actual um, uh, manuscript pages and she did some of the chapter outlines for him and I guess she extricated herself from a relationship with him which is how she ended up you know being erased from history but um, mm. apparently Luton would just send her places he would say all right we're going to make this and so I need you to go to New Mexico and figure this all out for me and so she actually uh, took his extremely expensive camera I guess went down and shot everything that she needed to shoot, sort of picked up all of the local flavor, came back, um, had all of the sets constructed to look like all of the photographs that she took. And then she's wow. the one that sort of put it all together for him. So so it wasn't even shot there. It was shot on Hollywood sound stages that were reconstructed from That's incredible. I, I definitely wouldn't have known that. I It looks very authentic and it, feels that way. It it has a very New Mexico or Mexico or just South American flavor. South it's American not, flavor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And even their dialogue and just everything. It's uh, I wasn't expecting it at all, and it because I I associate this with uh, Cat People, obviously, and uh, I watched with Zombie those two, which I had ha I had seen. So this was the the last one, sort of in that trilogy that I that I wasn't familiar with, coincidentally. So and it is very different in tone. Than those two. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you can definitely tell the the 
how it was more set up by women than I walked with a zombie or uh, cat people. Cat people. Cat people I like a lot. I walked with a zombie. I might even like more in terms of the actual design and uh, implementation, but the the fact that it's Jane Eyre is still kind of whatever, right? It's right. <laughs> it's kind of right. icky that they end up killing a couple of the characters and doing what they do to make things end up in the happy place that they end them in. Yeah. I walked with a zombie. I wasn't, uh, that was the first one I saw and I was kind of underwhelmed by, and then cat people like really blew me away. That one, I, I don't know. I just thought it was so, uh, gorgeous just the way it's shot and the shadows and the lighting and, and I mean, besides it being extremely queer too, (laughs) which makes it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wonder if, I mean, do you feel like the, so are, are these that way because of Luton's influence? Is that what that, is that it more so than the director? So I think so, because I think that that extends through most of the other pictures that um, he did. Luton did. Yeah. It's like 14, I think, right? I think he did 14 total. That's very possible. I don't remember specifically. I remember watching all of the RKO ones and certainly the like in the body snatchers, you have a Boris Karloff and um uh oh goodness. Who was the um <laughs> Dracula? Oh, no. In any case, they had a wonderful uh these wonderful male sh- uh stare downs too that are also quite fun, I guess. Um I liked uh all of the Luton movies are absolutely worth catching and I highly recommend them. Um, a lot of people on Letterboxd have, like, intentionally, like, there's a ton of lists and people, like, marathoning them. So I know this is, like, a thing. I, that's why I was like, we have to mention this because it's uh, something that cinephiles do. You know, it's like this particular producer. I think that we do. I mean, the the technical aspects of these things is really, it's so impressive how he uses shadows. I would say that the Luton oh, Tourneau yeah. movies or Tourneur movies um, use shadows possibly better than any other combination of director and producer I've ever seen. And in the case of mm-hmm. The Leopard Man, there's even stuff like uh, when um, one of the one of the aggrieved people goes to shoot uh, who he believes is the killer. He literally steps into the shadows in order to shoot him. It's all just beautifully thematically um, made real. And I I really enjoy those films. Well, and also with Leopard Man, if you don't know going in, you don't think it's a serial killer movie at all. I mean, you you think that it's like, because there is a leopard. And I mean, there is this sense of like, what is going on? Um, And then when they're running away, you think they're running from that too. Yeah, I uh, I really should have mentioned that. The the book, I think it's probably a little more clear that you're dealing with a man from the very beginning. Mm. In the movie, mm-hmm. um, it's much more vague. And uh, there's a thing about how um, uh, William Friedkin actually uh, did the, the commentary on the Leopard Man DVD that's from Shout Factory. And he talks about fascinating. He talks oh about gosh. all the movies that that influenced um, with that that first shot of the 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 girl being killed, and then the blood pooling under the door, um, which isn't much of a spoiler because it happens about eight minutes into the movie. But um, right. it's definitely worth catching. Um, technically, again, um, these are really impressive films just from that standpoint. Why would freaking? Why did they choose him to do the commentary? That's that is such a a random choice unless he's like directly well unless he did something he's a film historian i guess and so he's actually shows up on a bunch of the um shout factory dvds as a commentary on some of them um and as somebody i love that he does that who stands really hard for uh like sorcerer and um uh to live and die in la in particular i will always love to see whatever he has to say about things me, I I love those two films, especially To Live and Die in L.A. That really floored me. And that was like a blind buy. I had to, I don't know why that isn't more available because it's so good. But um, I bought that so that I could even just watch it, period. And uh, that's another one um, like the Verhoeven I watched where it just, it's so visceral and powerful and angry and... Um, uncompromising uh and so anything that guy has to say i'll i want to hear it i don't even care what he's talking about 
Well, I love his line in the film. Uh, in the commentary, he says that uh, the enemy of horror films is uh, coherence. And I think both of these movies really bring that home a little bit. The idea that, you know, what we don't know is a lot scarier than what we do know about. And so. Um, yes, I think that's also Hitchcock's uh, philosophy that uh, the less that you the more that he can get you to imagine what something would be like the scarier that is it's it is like what your imagination can do is much worse often i i um i mean hitchcock some of those scenes uh, he also does a very good job of making the um the audience knows more than they think the audience knows a lot but they don't know as much yes. more than the characters as they think they do and they're nowhere near where hitchcock is going with everything it's a double game of like who's ahead of who which i i love on his best pictures but he's not holding your hand or like talking down to you which oh, is no. one of my favorite elements of any movie i mean i never want to feel like i'm being spoon-fed something or that that something has to be explained because i'm not the the director is worried that we're not smart enough to figure it out. Yeah, I think that the Leopard Man actually does a good job on, on that to that point too. And that it does have a psychiatrist say to the one character who you're thinking, oh my goodness, this could be you know the the guy that's a problem. The guy. The psychiatrist, mm -hmm. you know, explains to him, oh well, it could be you. You drink a lot, you know, and uh, you know, how do we know you're not the killer? And the audience is like, oh, you know, I that occurred to me that he was the killer and. It doesn't really necessarily turn out that way, but it's still funny. And also, again, to reiterate the uselessness of psychiatry and the opinion of Val Luton and Jack Tenor and Mark Robeson and all of them, because the psychiatrist is not yeah. helpful in cat people either. <laughs> no, they're, they're more or less just just there. Like they're, they're just, yeah, but they don't contribute. No. And you can't rely on them to come to any sort of revelations. The other reason I would encourage people to watch these movies is that the sound design is so excellent too. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, the castanets here get used a lot the same way that the uh, the drums in um, I Walked with a Zombie get used, and it's just it's fascinating how much they can add or subtract from the tension. If I if I were teaching in film school, this would be absolutely these would all be movies I would show and just say listen, don't even watch, just listen. Mm. Yeah, and I was going to say uh, that's a good segue into uh, our third movie, which is Murder by Contract, because you were telling me that was something that you really like about it, right? The the music is like, it's kind of like the third man. Yeah, the... Uh, the with the guitar. It's a, uh, yeah, it's a string, sort of a tenor guitar instead of the zither, but it's so mm -hmm. low key and just sort of in the background and it, it adds sort of a jauntiness, I think, to it that otherwise it wouldn't yes. have. I think the third man, that's very underestimated how much that zither score makes things more fun as opposed to being a, uh, I apologize for my dogs. Uh, it's okay. Go ahead. Uh, it just makes speaking it makes, of sound. Yeah. <laughs> I I don't know that that movie would be uh, nearly as enjoyable if it wasn't for the zither score making everything kind of um just jaunty would be the word I would use on that. Well, and right. So, so murder by contract is the gem that's from the book that I'm reading, which I always bring into these episodes by Irving Lerner from 1958. But the composer actually literally is doing an homage to the third band. Um, and then uh, it does have this way of sort of, cause this is a noir. It is very serious. People are getting killed, but it sort of endears you to the characters in a way because the music puts you into a relaxation state. Like you're just, you just feel more receptive to the events that are going on. Um, but it does create a very interesting dichotomy because yeah, it is kind of upbeat and lighthearted, you know, until the end where it all switches to diegetic piano music. And that scene is so amazing. I really enjoy I know. that. I'm a big fan of diegetic sound and that that one is one of the best I think I've ever seen. So when you talk about sound design, you're talking about like the the decisions that they made in terms of the instrumentation. Like you mean like the unique ways in which it adds. Yeah, just the blending of um, sounds that are that would generally, you know, be um, 
extra to the action, but instead using ones that are used in the action to sort of drag you in, kicking and screaming, to the reality of the film, even though it has a lot of these same effects that it would if it was a, a score that was overlaying it, right? So, right. you know, particularly with I Walked With a Zombie, for example, or the castanets in um, The Leopard Man, those those drums, they're there to make you uneasy, but... Uh, or the castanets, but at the same time, they are um, in the movie, you know, you're seeing people perform them most of the time. And so it's also making you feel more like you're one of the people that's in the film being made uneasy by the drums or by the castanets. And so it's a very right. tight, um, it, it's a very good way to draw people into uh, the, the reality of the film. There was, I can't think of this, so I probably shouldn't even mention it, but I know there was a movie I remember seeing where it was like all the sound in it was sound that was actually happening. Like there was literally nothing, there was no music or sound in the film that didn't happen live. That's not something that people normally do though. Well, all but... of the Dogma 95 films, the original concept of the Dogma 95 included all natural sounds. You're at right. The time. Like the celebration. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Um Yeah. Which those are not my favorite movies, to be totally honest. No. <laughs> I, Good Lord, I'm not endorsing it in any way. That's another one that I blind bought that I want to like toss over a cliff. So Sorry. I saw that at Toronto Film Festival on the first night after we flew in. And Dan, uh, we, we flew it. That was 2002 or something. And uh, we flew in, mm -hmm. watched that. And my friend and I looked at each other and we were like, we might not make it through this festival. <laughs> like, we might just have to go if that's what this is. I want to like. go home. <laughs> yeah. That was also uh, something that Von Trier came out of, right? Yes, if I'm not exactly. Mistaken. Right. So, yeah, if you, if you know, if you guys don't know anything about this, this is like a, it, it's almost like extreme reality cinema where they're, also doing the handheld thing in that movie and a lot of those. So it just, it wants you to feel as much as humanly possible that you are present in the room, literally. Um, but it, instead of it doing like a, like having like a found footage Blair Witch Project sort of thing, it's more that you're just very disturbed. It, it has like a, I don't know how to even describe it. I, I think it does a very good job of creating its own artificial thing. I mean, it makes it very clear that you're watching a movie, even though it's, you know, giving you all of these hallmarks of quote unquote Trying realism. To... Yeah, good point. I, I prefer. It, it does feel that way. No, I'm sorry. I prefer no, ahead, um, yeah. uh, to speak of the extremely difficult cinema that, you know, I always seem to come back to. I prefer when Von Trier went a little bit even more nuts with uh, Dogville, <laughs> where it's that extremely performative Artifice. aspect of things. Yeah, exactly. But um, that that movie, you know, is one of those that just kicked me in the teeth at the time. And I, I still can't say enough good things about that. So That's you and D'Angelo again. Yeah. That I saw that movie also because of D'Angelo. I I did not, but I think it's because, um, kind of going back to uh, Hartley in this way, where things could get so stilted and so artsy that I I can't go with it any further. Like Dogville is an extreme example. Like you're saying, what you like about it is what I didn't like about it, but it is sort of at least admitting right off the bat that this isn't obviously real like it's aware of itself enough i i think it's fairly clear on the i'm i really dislike allegories but i always kind of am amused by metatextual type things and so that's a very weird mm -hmm. disjunction in my personality i freely concede but one of the things that dogville does is you know when when um uh, the one character said, you know, that the notebook is filled with his wicked little sketches. You say, well, that is this movie. You know, almost everything in that movie could be brought back to the fact that Lars von Trier is torturing his actors live yes. on set. And yes. everything that he's saying about, you know, how humans treat each other is right there in the movie <laughs> with him treating his humans that way. And so yep. I think that clicks with you or it doesn't, right? And he, Von Trier is kind of always coming from that point of view. He, I mean, Antichrist and um, uh, not breaking the waves, but the, the, the house that Jack built. Oh, the house of Jack. Dancer in the dark. 
Yes, he it's it's almost like these are all his little notebooks coming to life. Like the guy was journaling for years about the stuff that's in Antichrist, like when he said he was so depressed and suicidal and just going through it. And here we go. Here it is. And, and so that's that's probably the ultimate like I wrote this in my journal and uh, <laughs> I'm going to torture you all with what I'm tortured by sort of person. Very much agreed. <laughs> yeah. Don't know how we got to, well, we got to him from Murder by Contract, which is a stretch, but I was going to mention also Murder by Contract is one of Scorsese's favorite, favorite films. And um, it is a very, very tight noir. Uh, it's not long. And um, it's, it's, I think, very special because of, uh, it's one of those movies that sort of sets a template for like Tarantino, where you have the philosophical hitman or you have this sort of uh, banter. I love the banter in this movie between him and George and like his handlers. Um, so it, there's a lot of things in it that that you're like, oh, well, I've seen this before, but at the time I'm sure that that wasn't popular as it is now. Now you see it in everything. Uh, yeah, I agree. And um, Friedkin actually says that he thinks that The Leopard Man was influential on Pulp Fiction because of the way that it changes from victim to victim through by way of uh, Margot mm. um, as Coco walking from person to person. And I did want to bring up Coco. How how good is Margot as Coco in this movie, too? I know. She's so intense and so, my goodness. <laughs> yes, yes. The the energy is palpable. I'll just, just say that. And um, I... It's interesting that she gets a full performance, you know, Gilda or uh, this gun for hire style where, you know, they, they actually give this woman the ability to do this. And obviously she's Hispanic as opposed to uh, Rita Hayworth, where they had to they did all of that effort to make sure that nobody ever suspected her of being Hispanic. And that's one of the reasons right. I like this movie is because it lets, you know, native people be native. It lets Spanish people be Spanish. It, it's not. It's just not as interested in in covering everything up the way that usually I'm I associate with those. Right. Well, and it's not even that it's just letting them. I feel like it's embracing it. It's actually it's actually like a um, a selling point. It's a strong part of of what the film even is. It's like they're not only not shying away from it, but they're saying this is a valuable asset, and the movie would not be what it is at all if you got rid of those elements you are absolutely right and i think all i'm saying though is that my bar is so low for that sort of thing particularly now in terms of your expectations my expectations are just so pitifully low <laughs> i'll take anything so is the, to to conclude this i i want everybody to see these movies leopard man seventh victim and um murder by contract but dan what is your uh what is your favorite new movie like if you if you had to say oh is or is it Matrix Resurrections? Probably is that. Um, what did I see relatively recently? Um, Matrix Resurrections is one of the last movies that I really um, super enjoyed. I'm trying to think mm -hmm. if there's anything else that I've seen more recently than that. Yeah, because I don't even really watch recent movies anymore. I'm so the, immersed. The Criterion in... Channel is just my. It's. Go to. I, yeah. I mean, I think I've watched, I, I looked at Letterboxd. I watched something like 400 movies on the Criterion channel since it debuted and it's only been mm. out three, four years. So I really, um, that's more or less where I see almost everything these days. I agree. And, and a lot of it is, uh, foreign as well. They have such like a expansive, it's not just that, you know, we're, you're only watching like black and white films or a certain genre they have such a solid variety in there too um yeah but uh the last two movies i've seen that i i loved were uh trust by hal hartley and uh i rewatched henry fool for the first time since 2000 and goodness i love that movie so that those would be the last yes. two five star movies i've seen dan and i someday are going to do a hartley episode and uh and our buddy, mutual friend Yarb, will listen to it and enjoy it, even though he might be giving it up. Um, I have to give a shout out to him when we talk about Hartley because he he did not love the movie that I did, which is Surviving Desire. That's still my number one, although I do love Trust very much. And then Henry Fool is your first. Absolutely. Right? Henry Fool and then That's Trust. That's the one that you like. But I, I actually yeah. ordered a bunch of discs from palhartley.com. 
they don't have the Henry mm. Fool trilogy, but I ordered all the rest of them, which are phenomenally expensive, annoyingly. But uh, they should be arriving sometime later this week, and I'm going to watch all of those too. So more updates. To I come need on to that. watch. Uh... I think I just have the major ones left are The Unbelievable Truth and Simple Men. Is that what it's called? Simple Men. Um, yeah. Have you seen the uh, yeah. the one about uh, the, the retelling of Beauty and the Beast from 2000? I can't remember what that's called. With Sarah Pauly? Yes. I haven't seen that one. That one I'm looking forward to. Okay, yeah, that one looks insane. <laughs> I don't remember the title of it right now, but it's a, it's also a strange title. But the fact that he did that, if you if you look this movie up on Letterboxd, the cover photo is just crazy. Like he, it's like, what is going on here? It it's but it's aware of itself. So like he he always is. So that should be intriguing, Dan. We if I will be more than happy to discuss Hartley with you anytime. Just ask. I will be. I would love it. Yeah, we'll have to get Dan back for a Hartley a Hartley uh, marathon here because that's one of those directors that you either vibe and you love him or you're just like, you don't at all. But I, I feel like the people who love him are like instant friends. Like you could be friends with anyone who likes Hartley if you do yourself. But part of it is that he's such a, he's such an obvious philosophy humanities kid where he's bringing mm -hmm. in so many deep textual references to, uh, you know, I'd right. Milton and Blake, but also uh, T.S. Eliot and all of these other guys that he just sort of brings into these conversations and it feels random and whatever, but um, it's easy to find deeper meaning there if you, if you spend a few minutes and brain cycles thinking about it. It's also, he also reminds me of Kaufman too, where these guys are just, it's almost like we're kind of obsessed with artists who make movies about artists and about how tortured writers are and trying to express yourself and all of that stuff, uh, the writing process. It's very Kaufman-esque too, even though Kaufman's obviously later, but it's that same thing where I think we're just, if you're like an English major reader person, you're just drawn to these guys very, very easily uh, just because those are the themes that they're always exploring. Absolutely. English lit. That's yeah. partly for English lit majors. That's where we go. <laughs> we stand. I'll make a list. The best movies for English majors because I know that we're all secretly, that's what we are. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Well, Dan, it was a pleasure to have you. I will have you back someday for sure. Thank you for uh, agreeing to be on the show. Everybody go watch his Hidden Gems. And uh, we'll see you at the movies.